HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Dye Green. I'm your host, Max Sussman. And I'm Kate McCabe. The other host. (laughs) Our guest on today's show is a really inspirational artist and organizer named Katie Holton, an artist and an activist who is originally from Ireland but currently lives in New York City. Her work is inspired by the relationship between humans and the natural world. And one of her most recent projects is creating this incredibly beautiful book called The Language of Trees, a rewilding of literature and landscape that came out earlier this year. Katie created a tree alphabet that has a corresponding font. So each letter corresponds to a different living tree. Um, She's made one for New York City and has also made an Irish tree alphabet. We should get dyed green hats that are in the tree language. How cool would that be? Or any kind of swag in tree. Yeah. Just say, it would just say dyed green tree. No, I know what you're saying. It'd be sweet, right? Yeah. Do you speak tree? <laughs> Birch, oak, aspen, um, walnut. You know, that's actually <laughs> one thing that actually is a question which we I can't believe we forgot to ask Katie and which now I will just never not be thinking of is how do you pronounce the language of trees? Like when you're reading the font. That's what I'm saying. You have to speak the name of the tree for each letter. Mm. It's not some like guttural kind of language that comes. No, Kate, it's an art project. Talking to Katie was great because the conversation was like sort of this overlap of uh, art and environment and activism, which are all things that are really important to us. So it was wonderful to connect all those in the conversation. I really like how Katie talked about the role 
of the artist in terms of getting involved in politics and, and speaking out. It's especially important in this time with the unfolding climate crisis, if you're going to be making art about nature, how could your art not actually speak to these existential yeah. questions? And how could you not live your life accordingly? Anyway, highly recommend the book. It's really beautiful. It's really interesting. And um, like I said, to well, you can just listen to it yourself. I'm not going to tell you what I said because I said what I said. And you got to <laughs> listen if you want to know. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a really long time. I'm very excited to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's lovely to finally meet. I was hoping you could start out by talking a little bit about where you come from and how you came to be inspired by the relationship between people and nature and the role that that plays in your art. Yeah, well, I guess it all goes back to rural Ireland. I was born in Dublin, but um, you know, my parents and I'm the eldest, so I was the first baby. We moved to Longford, right in the middle of Ireland, um, as soon as I was born. So that, and we were there until I was ten. So the first ten years of my life were spent, you know, kind of running wild and free. Our house was on the edge of a field, and. Um, at the edges of that field were ditches and hedges with trees. So, and my mum's a gardener. So we were, you know, basically the door would be opened and we'd run outside. It's funny, like over the lockdown years, and I guess even before that, you would hear people talking about, oh, in the olden days, the house, the door to the house would be opened and the children would be let run free and then you wouldn't come back until it was dinner time. And that's how it was. And now these days it's very different for lots of different reasons. But kids don't really have that anymore. Um, many of them. Anyway, so I'm of that generation. I was born in 75, so it was late 70s, early 80s. And I just was, maybe because my mum was a gardener, um, always hands in the dirt, digging, planting, and that whole cycle of life was very you know, it has always felt like such an integral part of me. And I feel very connected to how that cycle works. You plant something, it germinates, you harvest it, you consume it, you compost it. And, you know, and, and but anyway, so you were asking me about trees and humans. So I, I, you know, I was the eldest. So for those, and my sister is one year younger than me. So, um, yeah, having that time outside was that's the place I go back to when we've been having salons and we invite everybody to think of where's your favorite place where do you feel most safe and happy your happy place I always go back to lying under those trees that were in the hedges and of course they're not there anymore they were chopped down to build a motorway I know that it's different for kids growing up these days for a lot of reasons but I was wondering if you thought if you could, if you were, had any thoughts on how rural Ireland itself has changed, and the motorway was actually a really interesting segue to that question. Do you think someone growing up right now could have a similar experience to yours, or is it harder now? Well, my sister has twins, Aoife and Heidi. I actually dedicated the book to the, the UK Irish edition in the acknowledgments. This edition of the book is dedicated to Aoife and Heidi, who just turned ten. 
they're also Virgos. They turn 10 in September. And, you know, they, um, Shelley's married to an English guy, Nick, and they lived in Bristol for a long time and they just moved to Dorchester during the lockdown. So they have a huge garden and Shelley's kind of fall, fallen into my mum's footsteps and has now become an avid gardener and is completely addicted and hooked. And they, that's how they live. They open the door and they're out in the garden and they sow the seeds. So it's, and I think it was very important for Shelley because she also has those memories that I have. She doesn't have the same memories, obviously, because she's a whole other person. But those, that's, that specialness, having that access to the outside was so important. It's why she, I think, wanted to leave London because that's where they lived for like 10 years. Um, really needed to have that outdoor space. So I feel like Aoife and Heidi are, are getting that. Um, but they also have the screens and they're kind of addicted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're familiar with that as well. Yeah. With our son who's eight years old. How, how did you, um, where was the line, no pun intended, from your experience with the outdoors to uh, drawing and writing? When did you become interested in those mediums? And how are they connected uh, for you? I think... You know, so my mom was a gardener, and that cycle, the organic, probably, and and my mom's mom was also a gardener. Um, so that lineage probably goes that way inside of me. But then uh, my dad was, uh, you know, worked with numbers, was an accountant and a mathematician, and because I was the eldest, tried to or imagined maybe that I had that capacity that his brain had for numbers. So I have those memories of sitting down with a blank piece of paper and a pencil. My dad loved working with pencils. And I can still remember, you know, just the the magic of watching him make a mark and write the numbers. And he was so excited. He He loved this magic and how it worked and that system. Because mathematics, right, is a, like a man-made system. And it makes sense. Maybe if you can understand it, my brain isn't wired the same way. But I think, and we had a lot of encyclopedias and so spending time and atlases because my dad actually worked for Avis for a while when um, he was younger and drove through the Sahara and was in Japan a lot. So had atlases of the world. So I spent, if I wasn't outside in my memories, when I was little, I was inside with these huge books um, navigating the world through these the words and and the images uh, and diagrams describing the planet, basically, I think. So in a sense, you could say everything that I've done since is very much related to, to those, you know, to my mom and dad and their interests and what they shared with me. That's cool. My dad, this is like sort of a tangent, but <clears throat> my dad was a, a huge baseball fan when I was younger, now he's kind of disillusioned with the sport and being kind of like, you know, very corporatized and all the new stadiums and stuff, but he, he loved going to baseball games. And he, there was the, the program that you could keep score in yourself was like, had a little line for each of the outs and each of the innings. And there were these like coded little lines that he would draw based on what happened in each play. And they were like, when you were talking about your dad, um, with the markings, it really, it just totally reminded me of that. And they're quite similar to the home uh, lines in a lot of ways. Like they're like up and down and a couple sideways lines. It's like these diagrams of like, oh, that was like a, a line drive to second base and then out or something like that. But he used to love writing those 
following along and writing that. I bet he, I bet he kept a lot of those old programs too. Sorry, this is my personal remin reminisce that you just reminded me of there. And that logic made sense to him. He could read it in it and yeah. understand what yeah. it said. But to somebody else, it would be completely incomprehensible. Totally. Yeah. It was a it was a code. It was a language. Yeah. You mentioned really briefly in passing the Sunday salons that you've had, and uh, I believe those were conversations or are conversations that you have in your home with different artists and activists around things that are happening in the world. And I'm interested, you know, especially in the time that we're living in right now, how you see the role of art in activism, because, you know, I've been following you and your work since I first learned of you. And it's something that a lot of artists talk about, but you seem to be really, really connected to. Yeah, it's so problematic, right? I remember going to college. I was went to NCAD and um, did an Erasmus exchange in my third year and went to the HDK, the Hochschule der Kunst in Berlin. Now it's the UDK. And th this was a big topic at the time, artists who were activists and doing social work. And it was very um, looked down upon if you did that kind of work. People thought that artists were doing it in order to get funding the government was giving lots of grants for groups who were working with communities and, and doing socially engaged work. Um, so I was, I was really young, like this was, I was still a student and I didn't even really understand what art was because I went straight from secondary school <laughs> to art college. So I thought Van Gogh, you know, and Monet, that that was contemporary art. <laughs> um, so it was a huge learning curve. But that was the beginnings of my understanding, thinking, being told by those around me that this was not something that you wanted to do, um, which was confusing to me because most of my work was happening outside of the studio, studio and through conversations with people. And um, very quickly, I realized that this was what I do. I, you know, even though I was in the painting department, I wasn't. It didn't make sense to me in any way to have a large canvas and oil paints and brushes to make an artwork in that way just felt so disconnected from my reality and what I was interested in. So the work was always happening outside in conversation in real time in a way. And I think time is something that's always been very important to me um, and trying to understand the world because essentially that's what my work is, trying to understand um, not necessarily who I am, but where we are, because I think the individual, and that's something that more and more my work has gotten really interested in. I guess like all of us, we're realizing that we aren't really individuals, like this microbiome means that there are more non-human parts of us. Um, even this morning, I was reading Philip Ball's piece that he just wrote for Nautilus. Um, he has cancer and he, he's got a new book coming out. Um, anyway, this is a little tangent, but um, talking about the cells and I've been looking into cells with the recent work for Emergence magazine. So thinking about how do we fit into this planet? Because everything that we know is on this planet, right? Everyone, as Carl Sagan said, everyone that we've ever loved, um, is this is what exists in the whole universe as far as we know it's all on this one planet and this connects to you know my dad having all of his travels so when i was little hearing these stories and seeing the the maps of the planet and using my finger to move across countries you know line drawing my way around the planet but everything exists on this one rock that's in outer space yeah so realizing that so i came to realize okay my work it's 
there's a lot of pressure to be in the studio when I was at college, but I said I got to be true to myself because this is what I'm learning. And so I guess this is where I got went off on the tangent that for me, the work is about trying to, to understand things. It's questioning. Um, maybe that's why I've always felt like creating printed matter in books was an important part of what I do because it's a way to share that information because it's about learning myself, but having conversations and sharing and asking questions. Um, I never, I try to never call the work political, um, maybe because I did have those negative connotations and had been, always been told, oh, you don't want to do that because then you're not you know, a true artist, you're a social worker. But in, I guess after the 2016 election, it's, it's nice that we're having our conversation today on election day. Um, I have to switch my T-shirt when we go. Um, I can't vote, but I'll go with my partner, Dylan, to vote. And I have another T-shirt that I wear for that momentous moment. Um, but when the 2016 election happened, um, uh, sort of imploding or exploding everything that I had understood about the world. I guess that's when it was, <laughs> there was no question um, that what I was doing was political because it everything kind of fused in that moment. Like I just saw atom bombs. That's what I saw when I heard the news in the middle of the night. It was just like the end of humanity. This is, it marked the end of our species in a way and most of life on earth. It was this momentous thing that had happened in a horrific way. And it just felt like, well, we've got to fight this, or I have to fight this because it's wrong, um, and it's wrong to attack people and communities. And that's what was happening every day. So, you know, I, at that time, I did have a little studio in the West Village, even though I don't usually have a studio. But I would go into the studio and just sit there in the dark and end up just making a sign, a protest sign for whatever issue was happening that day and would just rove between protests. Um, and that kind of became a full-time job. And it was just because I had the privilege of being able to step away from work and be in the streets, shouting and um, opposing whatever uh, vicious thing was happening in the moment. Um, so in that sense, the politics became very, became overt because you know there were pictures of me being shared and I felt like I had to share. So I was documenting the protests that I went to um, and the lines blurred completely. But in a way, my work had always been about all of these issues, but in a more invisible way, because I didn't feel, even though I knew, you know, my work's always been I think it's always been about the climate emergency, even before we had that language to talk about it. I've always been really, and I think that's why I came to New York. I came here on a Fulbright scholarship to look at our relationship with nature in the city. Um, and obviously that leads to where we are now, humans on planet Earth consuming, and where is that leading us to? Um, but I felt like we had enough time that I could do it uh, not in an arty way, because that sounds ridiculous. Like I'm just trying to make art and I never always avoided trying to make pretty pictures, uh, much to my mom's chagrin. Um, but um, but I think I did, naively, I thought that, that we had enough time that I could ask these questions and work around these issues, thinking, well, you know, even Jim Hansen, when he spoke to Congress in the 80s, thought, well, it was going to affect his grandchildren and it was going to happen in the future. And now that's all come smashing down, you know, just in the last year or two, we're seeing these storms like every day, there's another emergency. And it's so obvious that we've broken the, the planet, the climate system has changed 
completely and we're in big trouble and i think um if you don't if you don't this is personal this is for me if i don't speak about it i do feel like silence is complicity and not speaking about it is we just don't have time for that at this point um i don't frankly don't understand why everybody's not outside in the streets screaming i guess it's because they're busy trying to go to their job make their money so they can pay the bills you know we're like hamsters in a wheel really um and everything's spinning so fast it's very hard to get out of that cycle of just trying to take care of yourself and your family and maybe because i am an artist i have the privilege to be able to like hop out of the loop and go wait a minute this is all completely crazy we've broken everything and we're running out of time i don't know if that answers it but it's a bit of a spiel yeah absolutely it does and related to that i first came across your work through the Irish tree alphabet online. I don't remember how that kind of came into my knowledge, but it's beautiful and I loved it. I was reading an article um, in Emergence Magazine where you were talking about the alphabets that you do. And you said, I want to create living alphabets, stories we can plant to literally make words matter. Can you talk a little bit about what this means to you, the idea that language is broken? This was part of the inspiration for the title of our podcast, Died Green. So I'm particularly interested in your perspective on this. Oh, great, because I I wanted to ask you about the title. So I look forward to hearing that story. Yeah, so that all happened um, in the early stages of lockdown. The Irish Tree Alphabet was a project I was supposed to do while I was home in Ireland. I was planning on spending most of 2020 in Carlo, working for Visual, the large art space there. Um, I had visited in 2019, done a site visit, and was working with Emma Lucy O'Brien, the director there, very generous, and was really excited to do, because it's a huge space. I don't know if you've visited it. I think it's technically the largest visual art space in Ireland. Um, So it was very exciting. But then, you know, obviously 2020 came and I got stuck of all places in California. So I was very far away from Carlo. But we decided to go ahead, even though with the lockdowns, we didn't know if my show was scheduled to open in the summer. And so all of the work happened virtually. So the exhibition concept sort of completely changed in a way, because I thought I would be working with local community groups and with actual real trees. Um, and instead created the Irish tree alphabet. And I had already made the what I call the tree alphabet for this book that I'm waving in the air right now called About Trees. And when I got this book, this was in 2015, so it was obviously the build-up to the 2016 election. Um, and I think, that, so those salons, so all of this was happening at the same time. We started the Sunday salons at our home in the end of 2014. And so at that time, right, because it was built up to the election, so there was all this campaigning and that monster whose name I can't um, repeat, the who became so-called president, was, you know, twisting language and truth into pretzels. At some point I actually did, was making pretzels out of newspapers. Um, but it just, it was so, the horror, you know, and it was so vile because language is precious it's what we have as humans to communicate it's we're storytelling creatures we use you know i I started thinking about the alphabet as this it didn't fall out of the sky right these 26 little letters didn't just magically appear and sprout out of the ground 
ta-da, we're out, we're letters. You can use us. They evolved over like millennia. And they, uh, these letters um, in different cultures represented animals, plants. And so the forms that the letters take correspond and um, visualize, they're like pictograms in a way, something that they refer to in real life. So the le- the alphabet is a man-made invention, but it's so related because we are humans. <laughs> we're on this planet. We're connected to everything else. So it's it shows. I think I think we've disconnected from this. Maybe we should try and 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 remind ourselves when we're teaching kids the ABC. You know, with these baby board books, if we could somehow show how these letters where they actually come from, so they aren't they don't feel so disconnected. Anyway, so all of this. Um, sort of erupted in a split second in my brain in the middle of the night. And I thought, oh, I could make a tree alphabet with these tree drawings that I had made 10 years before when I first moved to New York. And that's what I did. Um, I replaced each letter of the alphabet with a tree um, and made this book about trees. And it was just a, it was a way to celebrate the, the beautiful planet and beautiful community and how rich it all is. And Honestly, it was like a time capsule because I wanted to do it to celebrate my 40th birthday. I didn't tell anybody that was a secret. It was my personal um, greedy act of wanting to try and encapsulate. So 40 years on the planet, uh, thinking through time, how can we celebrate all of this beauty? And trees seem such like, you know, it's an iconic, a tree is iconic and most cultures use them to celebrate um, and also talk about the connections with with humans we're planted and we're grounded and we're rooted the way trees are but we also exist in community like forests we share and we help each other so i made the tree alphabet so that i with my tree drawings they turned into a font so you can download the font and then type and translate with trees and everything in the book is translated into forests and as soon as i got the book in my hand i realized oh we could actually have a planting guide if we used trees happy to a specific place um it could become a planting guide that we could use and because i was in new york and had already worked with the parks department on a tree museum project they the forester bram gunther at the time got where he heard about my tree alphabet and we had a meeting and he said let's make a new york city tree alphabet and we can plant you know it would be like an abc that you could actually plant with um and so that that happened 2018 2019 and of course, I wanted to make an Irish tree alphabet. That was the inevitable, obvious one. And maybe I would never have made a tree alphabet if it weren't for the OM and that Irish you know, tree alphabet. And so 2020, that was when I made the, um, what I call my new Irish tree alphabet, which is complicated because it has the English language, <laughs> the Irish, so the Irish names for trees, English names for trees, the OM, and then my drawings and trying to decide which tree gets connected. So it was um, it was like a twister, mind bending, and having to do it all virtually, you know. So it was, and it's just my version of an Irish tree alphabet. Somebody else could make another version. Max has a follow up question, but I just wanted to make a comment since both of you have had tangents. I this is something that that just popped into my head while you were talking about doing this project for your 40th birthday. I have like a very specific memory of when I was younger and my mom turned 40. 
somebody gave her like a card or a refrigerator magnet or something like that that said 40 isn't old if you're a tree. And so I just wanted to say that. That's great. Seems like it fits here, but yeah, it's, it's a nice thought oh, as, as we continue that. to get older. I love that. Oh, I wish I'd known we could have made like that, the bookmark. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, if you had a secret 40th birthday, you, have, you still have that opportunity, right? No one needs to know. <laughs> yeah, maybe for my next momentous. Yeah. Because um, the years are going by so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm curious, the way you speak about language in general is really reminiscent. We did have Manka and Magan on the show, and we've spoken to him at length about how Irish speaking, about how the Irish language, words in the Irish language contain meaning that don't map to words in the English language and how it's possible to express things in the Irish language that are not as easily expressible in English. And I'm just wondering if, as you were working on your language, you saw any uh, parallels or any connections to the, you know, resurgence and the renewed interest in Irish speaking and the growth in, anew in the Irish language as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think... You know, Mancon and the work that he's done has been so vital, so important. He's really tapped into isn't really the right phrase because maybe he created this or maybe it's just, the you know, he's the right person at the right time. But there's such a need for it. And I think this is a global need, right, to remember. And I, I hope that my book, The Language of Trees, um, helps with this. There's a real need for, for us, right, humans, our species, to remember where we came from, for, to remember our creation stories and to remember who we are. Um, and this uh, suddenly, it's like a sudden realisation, like and it, it, it's related to what's happening now in Israel and Gaza. Um, and I don't want to go into politics and have that conversation because that's like horrific and traumatic and I'm no expert. But the, the fact that humans have... Sorry, now, as soon as I said that, then I had these horrific images pop into my mind. We, we really have this need that we need to remember who we are so that we can f- find the right way forward. It's like we've lost, we've fallen off the track into a, a crevice, right? And we've completely gotten sidetracked with these horrible people. And I don't want to be sexist, but most of them do happen to be men so, who've co- completely kind of corrupted and are trying to corrupt um minds 
and it seems to be pure greed and power. So, th- so that side of humanity is really ugly, and it's unfortunate that it's they're the minority, but they they seem so loud that they took up all the airspace. But to try and remember the the goodness, the heart of of who we are, and I think that always seems to, if you're clear eyed um, and really questioning it, you remember the indigenous folk and the people who were here before, right? So before the corruption happened, not that they were perfect, right, by any means. And so for my book, it felt really important that I include Indigenous voices. And um, I think in Ireland, it's so, you know, the country is so like on the scale of things, it's so teeny tiny, right? Ireland is just this tiny little rock in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, But we all know that there are hidden stories, like almost every rock has a story to tell. Um, And You've got Tim Tim Robinson did all of his incredible work where he literally almost mapped parts of the West um, and remembered those stories. And so Mancon's work, yeah, reminding us. And he's got the Irish language. I unfortunately don't because we moved when I was ten. I I never I don't speak Irish. I can just say on Will Cadigam Dolgachian Leris. Sadly, um, and that's another crime, right? That we don't have our language and you see it happening in other cultures where it's kind of beaten out of you um anyway back to but in a lot of ways i feel like you're maybe doing similar work with you know creation of language to express certain things in certain ways that maybe we can't express in english for example well okay i think with the tree alphabet it was just really important for me to offer a, a way to decenter the human, right? Because of all of this keeps going back to the fact that us humans, you know, we've placed ourselves at the top of the pyramid of life on earth. Like we can do, and you could read the Bible in a super creepy way, like we can do whatever we want, have dominion over plants and animals and dig it up. And that's kind of what we've been doing. And to realize, wait a minute, we are just one of the many millions of animals on this planet and we all need to share and live together. And I think that's why remembering and having these conversations with the indigenous communities who are really connected with your community. Like my book opens with Winona and the Duke's um, essay on the Ojibwe New Year. And this the new year starts when the sap rises in the maple trees. So you have this intimate connection with the land with your home and your community and the, the people and the beings that you live with. And um, so to try and break that disconnect that somehow happened to us. And so a tree alphabet was my um, gentle way of trying to say, wait a minute, you know, us humans, we're not the only ones who, who communicate and who have stories to tell. If only we could slow down and listen, you know, the trees and basically everything else here, they're all communicating. We are just too ignorant. Um, We're not capable because our species is so young, right? We're just a baby, really. We don't have the skills to be able to tune in and understand what all of these other species are saying. And so that's where science comes in. You have people like Suzanne Samard and others who are letting us know, well, actually trees, they communicate this way through the mycorrhizal network. And um, rather than competing with each other, they actually share and work in community and harmony. That's why I wanted to have the forest on the cover of the book to show the trees aren't these isolated beings. Because that's how I was taught when I was growing up, that they all fight 
for um, for light and minerals and the tallest one will win and beat out the other ones. It's it's not like that at all. They actually share and help. Um, but yeah, the, the language and the trying to remember, I think, you know, also when I was little, we weren't taught um, much of these Irish myths. It was something that was kind of disregarded or hidden or looked down on. Um, it was something that maybe old people were into or crazy people. Um, I think there's a lot much more respect now and a, a realization that this is actually really important for our culture and, and who we are. And you can only know who you are if you're really grounded and remember. I, I think what is what is interesting to me, and to go back to the the name for our podcast and kind of tie it to Ireland and to and to trees is dyed green. It was actually Max's idea, but it was inspired by the Chicago River, which unfortunately is dyed green every St. Patrick's Day because some people think it's cute and and funny or something. I, I don't really understand why that still happens, but it, but it was meant to also suggest sustainability. And sustainability is another word, you know, that currently kind of either doesn't really mean anything or it means something different depending on who is using it. And so the idea of dyed green also is meant to connect people to Ireland. The word green comes up for most people when asked to describe Ireland, but you wouldn't really know unless you started to scratch the surface that Ireland actually uses a lot of nitrogen fertilizer. And, and that is a large part of the reason why the fields are that everybody knows are green all year round and the different shades of green. But also another thing that people don't really think about or know about Ireland and Ireland's history is that it was once at least 80% forested. And certainly people don't think about forests when they think about Ireland. Um, they think of these, these fields and it's, it's sad. <laughs> it's sad when you, when you think about all of that kind of shifting baselines and just the lack of trees is kind of one of the, the things that maybe defines Ireland's environment. And this connects so much with what I was just trying to say about trying to remember, you know, who we are and where we come from, because we had forgotten that Ireland, the West Coast, the natural ecosystem is rainforest, temperate Atlantic rainforest. Who knew? It was only recently, I don't know if you've had Owen Dalton on. Um, no, but I, I've read his book. Yeah. Yeah. So Owen and Ray O'Fuchla, um, Darren Clare, realizing and, and showing us that, wait a minute, you know, this ecosystem is temperate rainforest. That's how disconnected we we are from our home that we didn't realize. So now there's this huge miss, you know, movement, and I think the rewilding campaign that's been happening too. There are more and more people who are doing what I've been trying to do for decades: get a little plot um, of land and let it do its thing, let the trees come back. Um, and obviously, we can't do that everywhere. That's a whole other political conversation because we do need food. But yes, to remember that this this rocky land was once forest. I, I've used the Irish tree alphabet to make this, um, to write that sentence on a few spaces. I did it here in New York at the Irish Art Centre. This was once forest because it's the same here in Manhattan. Manhattan was mostly all forests and Eric Sanderson has recreated that online virtually. You can fly over any address here in Manhattan and see the forest that was here before. Um, yes, well, thank you for telling me what that, that, 
those were exactly what came to mind when I, the, the title Dyed Green. Dyed Green is, is our podcast, but we also have a culinary tourism company called Bog and Thunder. We saw Bog and Thunder as sort of reclaiming the dis for lack of a better way to talk about it. I am really interested in also is how important bogs are for the environment. I believe that they're a bigger carbon sink than the Amazon rainforest, which which most people don't think about. The word bog doesn't really have as much of a negative connotation, I don't think, in the United States as it does perhaps in the UK and Ireland, but I've definitely heard the word bog used as a euphemism for a toilet, which is really unfortunate given how precious they are to the planet. In 2019, you you co-founded an organization called Friends of RD Bog to help protect a, a peatland area in County Louth. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that particular area means to you and how it's threatened and, and maybe where we are today in, in 2023 in terms of protecting it. Yeah, so it's it, it's so true that words, that little word bog, it has so many negative connotations in Ireland. And it's shifting now. I think the last couple of years, there's been a huge shift and maybe it's it's connected to what we were saying about Mancon and this bringing back the Irish language and a respect for the, the myths. And um, I actually, for my very first public artwork, I think it was my very first public artwork that I did in the art college in Berlin, was part of a bog awareness series that I did in in RD, that's the town. When I was 10, we moved to RD in County Louth. Um, so RD, Dublin, and Berlin, those three places I traveled when I was a student. And I, this bog awareness project combined my drawings, my conversations with people, meeting musicians who turned my drawings into music and performed them outside the public toilets um, in the art school. And so it was, it was humorous, right? It was a joke. It was meant to play on that word bog, but I shared photographs that I had taken in the bog. So it was also a way to show how beautiful it was to, to try and play with, um, with the word and the language and the meaning and the place. Um, but it's funny. So that was in 1997. So all those years later, I ended up back in 2018 really grappling with what was happening. The Irish government and the local Louth County Council wanted to build this motorway and the plans for it had been buried for about 20 years. So it was something when my dad was still alive, we were trying to understand what was happening with this motorway that they said they were going to build right through the edge of the, the bog in peatland. And it didn't make any sense to any of us. And it was very difficult to find out what was happening. And then it sort of disappeared. So that would have been in the 80s. I guess, or 90s. Yeah, around when I was doing all of that work. So so it went quiet. The plans for that road disappeared because, you know, the, the country we had no money. We had no money to build roads and bypasses. And then, so 2018, the plans resurfaced. Minister Shane Ross at the time got money from the EU. And at the top of the pile was this RD bypass. So he literally took it off the shelf. I think this is exactly what happened. He just took it off the shelf and said, okay, let's go with this. And one of the ministers was from RD and was on the, I don't know if I should name names, everybody who's local would know exactly who I'm talking about. He was on the minister, he's the transport minister, um, sorry, the transport committee, fiercely trying to do everything in his power to push this through. Um, and it's so 
corrupt and wrong in so many ways. And I, we don't have time and I don't want to go into the nitty gritty, but I made a website for our group, Friends of Ardy Bog. Um, it's ardybog.org. So you can see some of the information where we try to explain why it's the wrong road in the wrong place at the wrong time. It just doesn't make any sense to build a road through a peatland. But they could have gotten away with it back then. If they'd had the money, they could have done it and nobody would have blinked. Well, we would have been upset because we live right there. But now, right, there's so much information, like you just said, that we're realizing that peatlands actually store more carbon than rainforests. We were actually, when we started Friends of RD Bog in 2019, it was just me and, and Fiona and a few other locals, we were using this phrase saying that, you know, the, the bog is our rainforest because this was, that was 2019. It was before we realized Ireland had actually its own rainforest. So that's how quickly we're discovering things and, and really seeing our own land and country and landscape for what it is. Um, it's like we've been blinded for so long and suddenly, you know, the veil is falling away. So anyway, we, yeah, we were calling the bog our rainforest because it's true with, um, the sphagnum moss, which is the bog builder, absorbs so much carbon. And, and it's beautiful. The reason I had all of these photos, the first works I made from the Bog Awareness series were because when you, it looks like a brown smudge and a lot of people are very dismissive of bogs because they think there's nothing there. It's just this dead zone. But when you actually look closely, you'll see it's, it's full of jewels, um, sundews, carnivorous sundews that Charles Darwin wrote about. Uh, like a lot of people don't know Ireland has these carnivorous plants um, and bog cotton and asphodel and it's just yeah it's really beautiful and it's also very quiet it's one of the few spaces when you walk into a bog it's like sound and time and everything slips away and you're just in this timeless quiet zone so I think that's why I would go and spend a lot of time there when I was um so I have these early memories, right? The ones that I'd shared with you before when I was would have been eight, nine with the trees in Longford. And then afterwards, after 10, when I moved, my, the next memories were lying in the, the heather in the bog in RD. Um, and so it was a very special place to me. And I discovered my neighbours felt the same. So that's when we got together to form Friends of RD Bog as a way to try and understand what was happening with this mysterious road project that we weren't being given any information about. The government was just trying to quietly build it. Um, and so we started uh, a movement in a way, I think with Friends of Already Bog became this kind of a, a spark or an ember or a catalyst for other community groups and through social media. You know, I started the website and the website's very useful and everything. But it was really, I think, when I started the Instagram account that it really kind of exploded because then you can directly connect with other individuals and groups locally, super locally, and then more around the country, nationally and then internationally. And this recent movement, right, in recent years to share information and knowledge that we're you know, now understanding about bogs and peatlands, how precious they are. Um, and the, the one in RD is really unusual because it's the most eastern, easternly bog in the country. Most of them are found in the Midlands, near where I grew up, actually, in Longford. That's really the bog um, where people expect bogs. You don't expect them on near the coast. But it's curlew habitat. We have um, curlews where we used to until they started building the fencing for this illegal road. 
Um, and so we are in the process of taking the government and the county council to court. And actually today was the latest date for the, it's a JR, a judicial review, for the judge to see the case um, and got the message that they've postponed it because this is, they've been doing this for the last two or three years. It just each time the judge sees the case, he postpones it for another couple of months. But the next um, the date they've postponed it to is actually over three days. So this seems serious, like they're finally going to actually discuss the case. And it's going to happen in April, the 9th to the 11th of April. So hopefully I will be home and I can be there. Um, we're not sure what it means exactly, because these politicians have been so conniving and really, I think it's not too harsh to say evil and doing illegal things. Um, it's absolutely criminal and despicable what they've been doing to try and push this through. And it's just been a small group of us getting together. Um, like people power is real. So, um, but they've already, you know, they illegally went in and dug up with man with the digger went and dug up. Um, they removed like kilometers of hedges and trees, bits of the landscape, because the hedges are the bits that have been around for so long tore them all up, dug, uh, destroyed, murdered, slashed, chopped, whatever, um, removed them all to put in this fencing, marking the route of where this road, is, they want to put it through the edge of the bog in peatland. And it floods. So we have these gorgeous photographs that show the fencing completely submerged in water because that's what happens. It's a flood zone. The... Um, so, and actually, one of our members of the group had to go out and rescue the man in his little digger because he sank into the floodwaters. The whole thing is, you know, it would be funny if it wasn't completely this horrible. <laughs> so, so that's the state of um, play right now. And um, I've felt very strongly that what we were doing with Friends of Ardy Bog was related to the rights of nature movement that's kind of sweeping the globe, different communities. Um, in different countries all over have been gathering, um, coming together to create rights of nature included in constitutions to try and protect ecosystems, mostly bodies of water. So it started in Ecuador. Um, and then we had the Citizens Assembly in Ireland. Uh, was that last year, the year before, um, uh, where the group, the, the group of 100 people came up with over 100 recommendations to the government, including rights of nature. And hopefully there'll be a referendum on that. Um, and so I felt very strongly, it seemed obvious to me that this is what our group was about, rights of nature showing. And rights of nature is about rights of us, right? Because we are nature, humans and communities. And if you're protecting your local ecosystem, it's about protecting your family and your community because you need safe drinking water. You need trees, you need bog. We need all of this in order to live and thrive together. I was suffering from COVID and long COVID at the time. So I just had to step away. So I technically stepped away from the group and not doing the all of the, everything that I was doing for years. I mean, there's so much value in being able to to be there and to sort of help kind of like birth an organization and, and create a space to help create a space for, for people to come in and join and, and get involved and even recognize that some of these things are happening. So it was way too much work on top of everything else that I was doing. Like, it was crazy. I don't know if what, that's why I got long COVID, because, you know, I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't there in real life because it was the travel ban. I couldn't travel, couldn't be there. Um, and that's hard if you're not there face-to-face, because -face, this is all about dialogue, right? You, we know that 
growing up in Laos, you're in border county, so we've seen with the troubles, you really need um, dialogue, conversation. These issues don't just magically um, disappear. So I think the fact that I couldn't be there um, to have the conversations, because I think there was the fear, oh, you know, the local farmers feel if the bog is given rights, then that means they don't have, the, the humans can't use their turbary rights, to, the rights to dig up the peat, to heat the homes during the winter. Um, whereas the reality is it should all, you know, <laughs> it's very, very um, easy for me to say it's very easy to see how it should all work together. Um, it's the same way they're trying to de- uh, the, the just transition move away Port Nimona from being a peat digging, you know, digging up the entire peatlands in this middle of Ireland to just transition where you suddenly can create what they call green jobs. This is another dyed green uh, and sustainability. You have to be really careful what they actually end up doing. Um, but yeah, you really have to be on the ground listening, talking, and that's where um, conversation comes in at the local level. This is uh, all super interesting, and I we're running close to our time, but we wanted to talk about the book, The Language of Trees, before we ended our conversation. Um, it's such a beautiful book, and I know we've been talking around a lot of these issues, but we wanted to ask you if you could share about the book itself, the process to come up with the idea, and how long it took to put together, as well as the response that you've been getting and the reactions to it? Yeah, it's been um, sort of a long journey in a way, because it started, I mentioned before, this book about trees that I made in 2015. So the book, The Language of Trees, that just came out this year, at the heart of it is this book about trees. <laughs> um, so I could give that longer version of the story, because I could just say, oh, we made this and it came out in April. But, the, but anyone who knows me knows that I've been... Um, yeah, a lover of language and books. My, you know, I'm a visual artist, but I've always worked with language and and created printed matter that usually was free that people could take away whenever they visit exhibitions and projects that I did. Um, and then, as I said, I wanted to create something, a secret project for my fortieth. So that's when I made the tree alphabet. And there's the tree alphabet and the tree typeface. I don't know if you could hear, but that's the feeder just feeding my cat. She's not gotten used to the time change, so she's been hungry for the last hour. Um, so the book about trees was a way to to kind of celebrate uh, trees. And, and that, that's what I say about this book, The Language of Trees. It's about trees, obviously, but it's really about humans, right? Because we, um, oh, and what I should say is it's made up of, a, it's like a compendium. So there are about 50 or 60 contributors. So in a way, I'm kind of cheating, making a book that I didn't actually sit down and write myself. Um, and not that I feel like a fraud, but I have spent most of the year on a book tour. And I kind of am a fraud because I'm not like all the other writers that I've met at the festivals who sat down and they did that hard work of writing the whole book. I kind of stitched it together or wove it. Maybe I'm more like a weaver. Um, and collected a lot of different material some of it has been published before. Some of it was new, was commissioned for the book. And um, all of it hopefully tells uh, 
story about who we are, where we are, what we can learn from trees, what trees can teach us, what we can teach each other. Um, and this recurring notion of tree time uh, that hopefully if we slow down and we could listen to trees, if we could just really slow down, we could learn to maybe live better, be better lovers of the world. I think that's what it's all about is um, love, love for each other, love for community, love for this precious planet. And so hopefully the book shares some of that because that's really why I made it, I think, was to try and make a difference. Um, I was supposed to have an event at MoMA in September and the curator kept describing me as being on a mission. I'm on a mission. And I think it's like connected to what I was saying before about this political work. Like we don't have time, honestly. And Rebecca Sonnet's book, Actually Not Too Late, was published on the same day. Um, I, I'm holding up the Irish UK edition. This is the American edition. So this one came out first on April 4th, um, which was also the day that he was in trial. He was arraigned. And um, so the helicopters were flying in the sky. We had the launch in the Elizabeth Street Garden in Soho. So yeah, Rebecca's book came out not too late. And I feel like this is a partner um, book in a way. So yes, it contains a lot of other people who were so generous to share their work with me. And I feel like I've been lucky, you know, throughout my life, a lot of my projects have happened that way through other people and um, through their voices. And we're all about sharing and caring. The language of trees is like, I'm just thinking about as I'm talking to you, that it feels like what I imagine what one of your salons is like, but in book form, it's like a conversation yeah. with people about trees and between people about trees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Cause that's, yeah, I think that's exactly because when I made the original one about trees, um, 2015, that was right when we had just started the salons and some of the people in it, the book were part of the salons. So it was definitely that overlap. And I'm glad that it does feel like that to you because that, that was the, I guess part of the intention was to create something that did feel inviting. Like you're, you are part of, the, the reader is now part of this community as well. And that the threads, the conversation and the stories could lead you um, off on tangents um, and you could discover something um, or you could feel like you could contribute. I hope that it's open and inviting enough that people feel like they can contribute themselves to the story. And because the typeface is available, the font is there to download, people are invited to write their own messages um, as well. So it's kind of like a never-ending project. Maybe a lot of people feel like this when they make a project. Oh, it's never-ending, it's going to live on. But somehow this really does feel like that. Yeah, absolutely. And then I, I, Max makes fun of me because I, I say this sometimes, but I do feel like we could just sit here and, and talk all afternoon. <laughs> but I wonder if I could ask you, I, unless this feels a little bit too overwhelming or too soon because you're still kind of on book tour, what's next for you? Is Do you have another project that is evolving or you're working on, or, or will you be digging deeper into the, the language of trees in the future? Uh, well, I actually have to dig into the PDF because we're working on um, another edition. So, <laughs> so I had to open the PDF yesterday morning and do my first little testing, testing, and send it to my editor. To, so I should get a reply from her today, hopefully saying that my test worked, so then I'm free to go ahead on that. 
Um, but I'm also, you know, I made a series of drawings for Emergence magazine. I was working on them last year when I was really trying to understand the long COVID, whatever was happening with my body. I had hoped that by now it would be gone, but sadly it's not. Um, so I've been with a lot of doctors. So when I wasn't on book tour, I was with the doctors um, trying to figure it out. I have dysautonomia, which means my autonomic nervous system is dysfunctioning, is broken. And the autonomic nervous system is what takes care of things that should happen automatically, like your breathing and your heart rate and your neurons firing and your blood pressure, stuff that you don't think about. So it's very strange to be in a body that's now not able to do those things properly. So yes, that's what I've been working on trying to fix that and learn to live with it. And um, I think I'm going to revisit those emergence drawings in that project because it's looking more inside of myself, which I think mirrors what's happening on it, you know, inside the universe. <laughs> Um, so that's one project. Um, I'm actually going to be in conversation with Kerry and Marshall Farrell. I don't know if you know Marshall's book uprooting. No, I did see your Instagram post yesterday. I think that I shared. Yes. Yeah, I, I, so I didn't we're having know that, that conversation on the 30th of November. Um, I'm really looking forward to that because I'm in the middle of Marshall's book right now, and it's it's really. Um, there are so many parallels with Camille Dungies, a contributor to about to the language of trees. Camille, um, her book Soil, that just came out. So, you know, people who are gardening, because um, that's another project I, I've been trying to do for decades, is get my little plot at home in Ireland um, and be there. So lockdown, like for many people, has kind of upended things and made some things not possible. So that's been delayed. <laughs> um so, so yeah, the work continues as ever. It's, um, the artwork and the real life living work is all intermingled. So trying to fix my body and understand the dysautonomia. So it was something I had never even heard about it until the doctor said, like, diagnose me and use that word. And I was like, what? <laughs> what's that? Um, so the... Because everything starts with drawings and research. So I'm in that phase of that work. But yes, the book continues. It will have um, another life. I've even been using it because this is the backside of the my US edition. So the front is the forest and the back is end fossil fuels at protests and rallies. So outside of MoMA to ask them to divest from their fossil fuel funders. Um, so that work continues. They're protesting and... Um, campaigning i guess that's never ending and going off to vote now this was a really really fascinating conversation we really appreciated the your time and being able to get so deep into some of these subjects which i know i do make fun of kate for saying it that we could talk for hours but in this instance i agree and we could definitely keep talking for hours but we'll have to have you back on the show sometime and continue the conversation Thank you for having me. Um, it's been difficult because, you know, this book tour has been incredible, so rich, and I feel really lucky and privileged to have spent so many months traveling, you know, across here in the UK and Ireland, having these conversations about the, this book. It's been really, really incredible, so special. And despite being ill, like at the beginning, I thought the publishers were crazy trying to organize a book tour. I said, are you serious? There's no way 
Like even sitting upright is difficult for me. How on earth am I going to do it? But we did it. So the whole thing feels like a miracle. Amazing. (laughs) That's great. Well, congratulations. And thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Until the next time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Thank you so much. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.